Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Howdy, my good friends. Hope you're doing well today. Thank you so much for dropping by. I don't know how many folks out there listening remember 1969. By the time September 9th of that year, a whole lot had happened. I sure remember it. It was a heck of a year for this country, not to mention the whole world. For example, Judy Garland, the one that played Dorothy on The Wizard of Oz, had died on June 22nd. The New York Jets had upset the Baltimore Colts in Super Bowl III back in January. I watched that game, too. And uh, Woodstock had been less than a month before. The Beatles had just released Abbey Road, and Ringo's in the hospital with a serious intestinal problem. The only heavyweight boxing champion to have a completely undefeated record, Rocky Marciano, had just been killed in a plane crash nine days earlier. On July 21st, Apollo 11 had landed on the moon, and on August 17th, nearly the whole country went through one of the most catastrophic weather events ever witnessed. Hurricane Camille pounded everything from the Gulf Coast to the Appalachian Mountains with sustained winds of 190 miles an hour and gusts up to well over 200. Of course, that wind had calmed down a bit by the time it got to the Appalachians, and most of it was the rain. And that's the storm my grandpa brought on by not sticking the axe, a right axe in the stump, that is. It nearly erased Nelson County, Virginia, completely off the map due to flooding. That's the home of the Hamners, who were the Walton's TV show was created after. That's just a few things I remember, but there's still one other event that sticks out in my mind. It happened on September 9th. That many, you know, will never forget, but so grab you a sit down and let me tell you about it. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, 
so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Now, Allegheny Airlines started out in the Appalachian Mountains of Pennsylvania in 1939. It was a mail carrier that funneled mail through the skies, pretty much like a big tractor trailer does when you see it running down the road. By 1949, the company saw an opportunity to get into the shipping people business instead of just mail and renamed the company All-American Airways. Of course, with their new obligatory government subsidies, the airline did pretty good. On the first day of 1953, the company was again renamed Allegheny Airlines. By 1968, they had swallowed up two smaller airlines and expanded their flights out of the mountains and all the way to Chicago and added the new McDonnell Douglas DC-9-30 to their list of flying machines. Allegheny had had their share of accidents through the years, but they were confident that with the new DC-9s, that would improve. They had pretty much been flying older Convair and Martin aircrafts through the years and thought that their accident history could be explained by their aging fleet. And... In fact, they had so much confidence in the DC-9 that they'd bought a total of 89 of them starting back in 1966 and had a spotless record with them so far. On Tuesday, September 9th, 1969, it dawned bright and clear at 619 in Indianapolis, Indiana. There had been no clouds in the sky all night, and it was looking like it was going to be a beautiful day. There had been... Only a couple of days recently that had been good days for flying. The day before had been perfect, but Bob Carey, and he, he, you know, he wanted to get the last solo hours before he took his private checklist ride the next week, and and so missing the previous day was kind of stuck in his crawl a little bit. The forecast for that day was for some clouds to move in later that day, but they'd be high enough that a flight in a small plane wasn't going to be a problem. There were no clouds as Bob went to work at 8 o'clock that morning, and the visibility was better than 15 miles, and it was supposed to stay that way all day long. So his plans for the day were set. Finish up his job in the morning, hit lunch at home with his wife, and then bat hell for the airport and take flight. Bob saw that the weather started changing as cloud cover started rolling in. You know, it sounds like the weather in that part of the Indiana is about as hard to figure out as the weather in southwest Virginia. But Bob started thinking it maybe wasn't going to be the day for a flight after all. Now, Bob loved to fly. He and his family had moved to Indianapolis in August of the previous year from Manchester, New Hampshire. Bob had begun flying in New Hampshire, getting enough hours to uh, be a solo. And after settling into Indianapolis and finding a job in his field of plumbing, he picked right back up in his training in March of 1969, and he passed his FAA written examination. He was fixing to get his private pilot license. His medical certificate from March 13, 1969 showed that he had no health problems other than wearing glasses and that he had a past slip disc that he'd suffered in 1967. Bob was a Korean War veteran and had served in the U.S. Air Force from 1953 to 1956. He served as an aircraft mechanic and always had a love for flying. His wife and family were very supportive of his flying and looked forward to him getting his license. He took some of his children flying with him before and had taken a second job to make sure that his family was well taken care of. And the only thing Bob loved more than flying was his family. Bob was 
Described by his instructor, Robert Kiesel, as a very personal individual with a happy demeanor. Bob and Lorraine, his wife, had six children. They were Michael, 11, Thomas, 9, Darlene, 8, Kathleen, 6, and Charlene, 4, and little Lisa, who was just eight months old. Bob was eating lunch when the low-level clouds started moving out, and by 1 o'clock, he figured that it was good enough because with the elevation being 650 to 800 feet along his flight route, he could glide his plane along at 2,500 feet and still have enough altitude that he could cruise along safely. The forecast was for the weather situation not to get any worse, and he needed to get his flight in, and he'd planned to go for it. He wanted to get his check ride in as scheduled, and it was weather that he'd flown in before and and been just fine, so Bob hit the airport at around 1 o'clock and was wheels up at 1.11. While all of that was happening, the scheduled departure of Allegheny Airlines, Flight 853, which was a DC-9 from Boston, was 12 o'clock sharp. The crew showed up at 11 o'clock, and the flight was due to fly over to Baltimore for a stop, then on to Cincinnati for another before heading to Indianapolis and finally on to St. Louis. In Cincinnati, 64 people were waiting on TWA Flight 69 from New York, and it was due in at 2.45, but wasn't going to be on schedule. TWA offered its passengers the option of transferring to Allegheny 853, and 38 folks jumped all over that. I don't know why, being in the airports is so pleasant and all. So 853 had to wait a bit for while those passengers found the right gates, got tickets transferred, and finally found their luggage. 853 was supposed to leave at around 3 o'clock, but didn't leave until about 3.16 on the dot. Flight 853 was scheduled to leave or arrive at Indianapolis Airport at precisely 3.36. 26 of those 64 passengers decided that they'd just go ahead and wait for TWA 69 rather than go through the whole torment and rigmarole of changing everything over. TWA 69 showed up at 3.45, which is a half hour after Allegheny flight took off. Now, piloting 853 was... Captain James Elrod. He was a very experienced pilot and one of the best. He'd come to a commi- be a commercial pilot in 1945 and had served with Allegheny Airlines for 19 years. His flight certificate was chock full of different ratings. The man was certified for the DC-3, DC-9, Convert 240, 230, or 340, I'm sorry, and 440. His first-class medical had been reissued just 36 days earlier, and the only stipulation being that he wear his blamed glasses for his nearsightedness while he was buzzing around the clouds. He had 900 hours on the DC-9 and an unbelievable 2,300 or 23,813 hours of total flight time and outstanding reputation of respect from his fellow pilots and supervisors to go with it. First Officer William Heckendorn was... 26 years old. He had been nearly obsessed with flying from the very young age and had taken that up immediately after leaving the U.S. Army. He had progressed rapidly and had been hired by Allegheny Airlines only a few years of flying experience in a corporate twin-engine airplane. His credentials were impeccable. His certifications completely up to date and he was rapidly working his way toward becoming a full-blown captain. 
his 2,980 hours of flight might have looked a little bit small in comparison to Captain Elrod, but he had a tremendous amount of piloting experience for his age and was more than in line with what was expected by a professional pilot in his standing. He had 651 hours on the DC-9, which was further proof that he was extremely well qualified in his own right and was very well deserving to set on the right hand of Captain Elrod. He had been home in Newville, Pennsylvania on the day before, and as Bill left the house to go to the airport, his little two-year-old had been extremely upset, not wanting Bill to leave. The whole crew stayed the night in Boston. They got there at about 10.20 and weren't scheduled to report for duty for 11 o'clock the next day, so they had plenty of time to get some whole lot of rest before the next day's schedule fired up. There was more than one member of the mix or one more member of the mix that still to this day makes flight possible all over the world and that's the flight controller. Merle McCammick was working his big chunk of the sky on the day that Bob and Captain Elrod took to the skies. Now the task of handling arrivals from the east and west were usually split between two controllers but on this day he was responsible for both areas of the sky. This didn't really present much of a problem for a veteran, veteran controller like Merrill and was completely within legal guidelines for air traffic control, for their workload, that is. It just wasn't busy enough that day to present any problems. Merrill was doing what he did best and was very good at what he did. The equipment that Merrill used at Weir Cook Field, which is now Indianapolis International Airport, at the time wasn't a whole lot different than it is what we use today, except for the fact that the radar didn't have the ability enough in what was displayed for the controller to distinguish the detail that they do today. Ground clutter was one of the biggest issues. In fact, it happened most of the time, and it was run to the mill for the controllers to set the radar sensitivity to low, and then that that had been done actually that day. Bob flew a Piper Cherokee and had filed what is called a VFR flight plan. VFR stands for Visual Flight Rules. Now, that means that the pilot is flying in clear enough skies to be able to flutter around by simply looking out the window of where he's going and figuring it on maps and stuff like that. All of the flight controllers knew that he would be in the air after about 3 o'clock. Being VFR and all meant that Bob wouldn't be required to talk to anybody at the Indianapolis Control Tower. He also wasn't required to have a transponder, and his position wouldn't be tracked as closely as if it was like a large airliner on an IFR flight plan would be. Now, IFR stands for Instrument Flight Rules. That pretty much means nearly the opposite of what VFR means. An IFR flight is about has about everything that's possible to stick on our aircraft and make it visible to everybody within 500-mile radius, turned on and blaring constant signals as loud as they can turn it up. To air traffic controllers, it would be equivalent to us watching a fire truck with lights and sirens running full bore. You know exactly where that sucker is. To add to the recipe for disaster, Bob didn't request flight following from air traffic control. He just activated his flight plan and went wheels up like he'd done many times before. That meant that there was no way that air traffic control could see him except for the radar, which was, in this case, especially pretty blind to small aircraft and on even the highest settings. In fact, controller McCammick had Allegheny Flight 853 on his radar scope and was tracking its progress as he did every day at the same time. 
in preparation for a visual approach to runway 31 left with the plane to the southeast of Indianapolis. Merrill cleared the flight down to 2,500 and gave it a westerly heading to, in order to bring it directly in from the southeast of the runway's final approach. The crew on 853 acknowledged their clearance and the plane descended, breaking out of the clouds somewhere around 3,000 feet. Captain Elrod had his attention fixed to the instruments while co-pilot Heckerdorn was monitoring the radio, making sure that the plane was complying with all clearances and he wouldn't have been starting or been about to start his pre-landing checks as well. During that time, Bob's Cherokee was flying south at 2,500 feet, invisible to Merrill's radar, and Merrill had no way of knowing what was fixing to happen. He heard the crew's acknowledgement of the clearance, then turned to another screen to handle the arrival from the west, which was Allegheny Flight 820, and to look at the clock and write down the log times as he was required to do. Video, however it was done back then, showed him turn away from the east screen for no more than 10 seconds, but it was enough. When he looked back to check on 8.53, it was gone from the screen. The plane had just disappeared from radar. Even if he'd been seen it disappear, there wasn't a whole lot he could have done from the tower anyway. The two aircraft converged on each other at an unbelievable speed, each completely oblivious to the other. The angle of the flight paths and the determination of the Piper's speed and heading from the NTSB calculated that the two aircraft were coming together at a speed of about 350 miles an hour. Only in the last seconds or so would the pilots even been able to see each other, and by then it was way too late. Witnesses reported that no pre-impact diversions were attempted by either plane and that the observation was backed up by a flight data recorder on the DC-9. There is some evidence that Captain Elrod possibly saw Bob's Piper because the cockpit voice recorder recorded him saying, I'm going down, right when the planes hit. That could have also been because Mr. Heckendorn had just given him altitude to him and offhand comments like that, like I'm going down, are often said between crew members because they usually do their thinking out loud, and it meant, yes, we are in fact going down. It's kind of a thinking out loud, like I said. Now, folks, this is about to get real ugly. Stick around. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Folks, Mr. Carey and the Piper most likely never knew what hit him. He was probably performing his task of being an advanced pilot on a cross-country flight, most likely verifying his position. In fact, he was exactly on course and wouldn't, would have intended to stay that way. Small planes, when set up properly, do fly themselves straight and, and level, and pilots often take a few seconds away from the window to look at a map and make sure, make some notations and stuff along those lines, maybe recheck or recalculate fuel and 
change tanks or something like that. Those uh, actions can take probably 10 seconds or so and are not considered unsafe flying. That's just basically the way flying's done. In the final one or two tenths of a second, Mr. Carey would have seen the DC-9 come out of nowhere right in front of him. His plane would have been, in one instant, pointed right toward the nose of the DC-9 from about 50 feet away, and then at the next instant, he would have passed 30 feet over the big right wing, missing the engines by just 10 feet. And when the sight of the DC-9 coming out of the wild blue yonder hit his eyes, his brain wouldn't have had enough time to tell his arms to even yank back on the yoke. He wouldn't have had time to say anything, do anything, or heck, he might have even thought anything. That was if he was looking out the front window there to start with. If he'd been looking down at the chart or figuring something, it would have been like somebody just turned the lights off on him. Most likely, he and his, he had his head turned away and never knew anything. Bob died instantly. It was a different story aboard the DC-9. There had to have been a passenger or two on starboard side of the DC-9 who was looking out the window and saw it all. They would have seen the piper down and to their left, not moving in toward moving in toward the window but growing larger and then in those last tenths of a second the small plane would have shot up relative motion toward the right side of their window and they would have maybe recognized it a little bit but uh, it was definitely something that wasn't supposed to have been there then they would have felt a, a slight impact or a smack or some kind of a thud while everybody else on board was wondering what in the world that thud was then why they were turning left, followed by why they were going upside down, then finally why in the world the pilot wasn't doing anything about it. And the unlucky passenger, too, would have been the only ones with the realization of exactly what thing they saw in their window was and knew what was coming. The two aircraft slammed into each other at 350 miles an hour. The point of impact was at the top right section of the DC-9's vertical stabilizer, just underneath the horizontal stabilizer. On the Piper, the impact point was front left side of the plane, just in front of the left wing route. It was just inches in front, of, in front and to the left of where the pilot sits. The little plane was sliced in two by the collision. The vertical stabilizer of the DC-9 slicing it completely in two at a 45 degree angle right across the cockpit. The rest of Bob's plane, including the left wing, fuselage, and about three-quarters of the cockpit, including Bob's body, scraped along the underside of the right half of the horizontal stabilizer. The combined force of the massive impact completely sheared off the entire tail assembly of the DC-9 with the fuselage's integrity most likely compromised as well. Several witnesses reported seeing objects that they thought were passengers falling out of the plane, but nobody on the airliner was actually thrown out. It's highly unlikely that anybody on board was even injured from the impact because the pilots, being as far away from the impact as they were, would have felt probably the same thing as the passengers did in the cockpit voice recorder. They were fully conscious until they hit the ground. The pieces of Bob's plane fell to the ground along the tail of the, the, tail of the DC-9 when the Piper was hacked apart. All of its aerodynamics were all but destroyed, and what the big tail section started destroyed the air resistance, finished off, and the forward momentum that the part of the plane had had was gone. Investigators are fairly certain that the spot where the 
Piper landed was most likely right directly under the point of impact. The right wing in the engine of the Piper still had a bit of momentum, and it fell to a couple of hundred feet north. The tail of the DC-9 fell just west of the impact site, and the fuselage carrying Mr. Carey pretty much fell straight to the ground, while witnesses described the other pieces of both planes fluttering to the earth, taking seemingly quite a while to hit the ground. Mr. Carey's body was still strapped in his seat, and his was the only body that was found in one piece. No autopsy was performed because it was obvious what had killed him. His body had sustained tens of thousands of G-forces, which is enough to provide fatal trauma to most of his internal organs and break his neck. What happened to the DC-9 can be heard in the cockpit voice recording for the time that Mr. Hegedorn had acknowledged a 2,500-foot clearance, and it went like this. The first officer acknowledged air traffic control's direction to descend to 2,500 feet. Either the pilot saw the Piper and made the statement, I'm going down prior to the impact, or it was just a simple acknowledgement that, yes, in fact, they were descending. Then there's the sound of impact. DC-9 must have slowed down a bit because the landing gear warning was heard and activated, which happens when the airspeed drops below a certain level and the landing gear is not extended. The speed is decreased to where the stall warning starts. The plane banked to the left and with no control from the tail and no vertical rudder, the control yaw, and it goes to the nearly sideways nose low attitude, which causes airspeed to increase, and so the landing gear warning shuts back off as it speeds up. As the recording continues, the airplane continued to roll over and goes completely upside down while increasing its nose low attitude. We know this because things in the cockpit start hitting the ceiling and the plane dives straight for the ground. The missing tail section makes the situation that much more worse. The plane by now is in a shallow dive from the cockpit. It probably looked like it was headed straight to the ground with nothing they could do to stop it. That's about as helpless a feeling as anybody could have. Cockpit voice recordings of crashes through the years have produced one common thing. That is, that no matter the situation faced by pilots, even if they know there's no hope, most of them remain as cool as a cucumber. They're even known to rib each other about what went wrong. That's when Mr. Hackendorn said to Captain Elrod in almost a joking manner, What did you hit? Then, the sound of a massive impact with the ground and followed by silence whole thing took about 12 seconds from start to finish. The DC-9 hit the ground at a minimum of 400 miles an hour and at an angle that didn't cause a huge crater but spread the wreckage along the ground in a soybean field where it crashed near Fairland for over a quarter of a mile. Everybody involved in the crash was killed. It was nothing but plain old luck that the airliner missed a trailer park full of people, some of which had just watched the whole thing happen by only about 150 yards or so. Still, the debris along body parts rolled onto a few stoops in the hor- to the horror of the people living there. One of the witnesses told her husband that the two planes were going to hit. I'm sure in typical man fashion, he thought that she was just overreacting because surely somebody in the control tower was watching what was going on. That was until they actually hit, and they watched one of the most horrific things a human could see fall at literally right at their feet. 
Of course, the government did their investigation, and what came out of it wasn't exactly clear. One good thing that did happen was that aircrafts were fitted with early warning devices that would detect an imminent air collision, kind of a long-winded way of the government saying that, the, well, we didn't think of this earlier, but it's not our fault now. Of course, Allegheny Airlines immediately replaced 853 with another DC-9 and continued the flight route. And on September 11th, just two days after the crash, the exact same flight, 853, while leaving Cincinnati on its way to Indianapolis, was involved in a near collision with a small single-engine plane. The pilot of the DC-9 reported that small plane crossed right in his path and less than a half mile away, and he had to perform an evasive maneuver to avoid contact with it. As far as the controllers could tell, the small plane pilot never knew squat about it until he was told about it. It was There was, of course, a lawsuit brought by the survivors of those killed in the crash, but no details of the settlement were ever released to the public. A total of 83 passengers and crew died aboard both airplanes that day, and I still remember the port reports coming over the radio that my mom used to play on the local station, WPUV. Today, it's a whole lot less likely, if not impossible, for this type of thing to happen again without the grievous error of a pilot being involved. All we can do now is say a prayer for those who've lost their lives as well as those remaining families and go on as best we can. But never forget what happened over a soybean field in Fairland, Indiana back in 1969. Now, I hope you enjoyed our story today. If you did, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to subscribe or follow us on whatever you're listening on, just to get notified of new episodes. Come on over to our Facebook group, Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast, where we talk about everything Appalachian or anything else you'd want to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend, and I'll see you then. Thank you.